I refer to this as passing. I can pass as a northerner because I've lived here, because of my qualifications and my background. And I think it's a shame that anyone from the South who doesn't have those bells and whistles or those formal qualifications, whether it's a PhD or simply a master's from one of these you know, influential institutions, um, I, I think that's, that's, that's a real indictment of development because could there be a field where, it's, where practical experience is more important Our guest this time around is Alex Martins. And Alex is an independent researcher who has done a range of things in a range of places, but focuses on how we can make the development system more equitable. That is based on a more equal footing between the global north and the global south. And this is a, uh, a tough ask in a sector that is pretty much defined by power imbalances between those who pay and between those who are supposed to benefit, which has moreover a uh, fairly old-fashioned attitude to, to human resources, let's say. So this is a pretty wide-ranging conversation. We, we touch on how people from the South are involved in development policymaking and what needs to shift in that regard. The ethical challenges for individuals of resisting bias and bad practices in contexts where the institutional and legal frameworks can be quite weak. The Aid to movement uh, and how this relates to wider struggles with gender equality in the development sector. I was quite keen to do this one. I've known uh, Alex for a few years, but you don't necessarily get to tap people's perspectives um, to the, the depth that you would want to around a meeting table or in, in the context of specific projects. A side note, uh, I was a bit ill for this one, do I do? So I do sound like I'm down a well. Uh, bear with me, I do not expire halfway through, I promise. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. I will start in the same way I always start. Uh, for those who don't know you, what is your day job if you're at a bar at a wedding how do you explain your profession uh, with great difficulty <laughs> um, as I think is the case for many people in development what I've been saying recently which seems to resonate is that I work for the UK government in difficult contexts and I use Congo as an example as I think many people do who've worked there and I say what I try and do is build up an evidence base to help mm. the UK government's interventions more effective so I do, and I say that I'm a researcher trying to do that, and that seems to resonate. That's fairly recent. The story's a bit more complicated than that, no? Indeed, yes. So my background, I started out working very much at the grassroots level with an NGO that was more of a movement than an organization. Uh, and then I decided that I probably needed some private sector experience, although that happened somewhat accidentally. So I worked for a, a development consultancy for almost five years, about four and a half years. And then at the at the very beginning of this year, decided to apply those skills uh, as an individual independent consultant and researcher. So that's what I'm doing these days. Uh, and that entails um, both working on consultancy projects and doing my own individual research. Right. And the reason for that sort of minor pivot, um, how would you explain that? Yeah, it's a great question. 
it was a long time coming. And the reason I made the jump is I felt I finally had something to say. Mm -hmm. And I thought it couldn't necessarily be said within an institutional context. And it's something that I needed to pursue individually. Um, and that's really looking at my main raison d'etre, as it were, at the moment is trying to understand why we have such gross power imbalances in the development sector between what the terminology I use is between the global north and the global south, despite having awareness of these imbalances for a very long time. So what are the blockages? What are the barriers? Why are we not addressing those power imbalances today? Because I think we need to. What, what drove that? I mean, you had a idea in your mind when you got into the sector, presumably, as we all do. Um, and that's shifted over time, clearly, or things have transpired a little differently to the original idea. But what sort of experience or practices are we, are we talking about in a concrete sense? So exactly, when I got into the sector, I don't think I had an appreciation of how northern driven it really was. So I grew up in, in South Africa and Brazil, um, so I'm kind of southern in that sort of general sense. In interjection, because your family history is quite interesting. Can you summarize <laughs> yep. that quickly? Uh, how long do we have? No, I'll, I'll do my best. So I was born in South Africa to Mozambican parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all of Portuguese origin. Uh, obviously, Mozambique was a Portuguese colony, and my parents left and moved to South Africa, where I was then born. Uh, then my dad was offered a job in Brazil, and we decided to go. So that's uh, how we ended up there. And then I completed my university education in the US, in Philadelphia, and then I've been in the UK ever since. Uh, moved to the UK and have been there ever since. So strangely enough, I've adopted more of a North American accent than anything else, but it's just a result of, you know, confused upbringing and lots of international schooling. Yes, yeah, so I often start with where is your accent from, which actually might have been a good, a good leader in this case. Yes, it's, it's strange because my par- both my parents, myself and my brother, we all sound different and we can't really understand why. Uh, though I do remember moving from South Africa to Brazil and being teased for, you know, riding giraffes and being a lion hunter and then going back home and then asking whether I lived in the Brazilian jungle. So that was very confusing. But every time I went back between the two countries, people would claim they couldn't understand my accent. So I think it was just a process over time of trying to be understood and less made fun of. And then this is what we've ended up with. Well, I think think you, like me, aimed for sort of getting an equal amount of mockery wherever you are. It's always there, but it's not too severe. Absolutely. And I'm one of those annoying people who I, I do change my accent depending who I'm speaking to. And it's it's honestly involuntary. And there's research to back that up. It is involuntary. And it just it just happens. So when I go back to South Africa, it just comes back. So, so with that background, you come into the development sector. What was your first... What was the first gig? I worked for Initiatives of Change, and that's the movement that I was referring to. So it's basically a grassroots organization across more than 60 countries. Right. Actually, a fairly uh, sort of alternative model as these things go. It's certainly not the the World Bank or or US Agency for International Development. So certainly not too bad in terms of the issues we're discussing. But um, you, you were starting to explain some of the sort of uh, observations or practices or biases, uh, and I cut you off, so continue with that. It's it's a good segue because I think initiatives of change uh, was, was a very interesting model because people would say, so who works in your Kenya office? And we would 
say, rather confused, what the Kenyans do, because it's really that grassroots approach. So very much bottom up people from those countries working on those issues with international support. So I worked for the international kind of hub Mm -hmm. um, and we were based all over the world, actually, uh, as well. We had someone in Mexico, someone in Ukraine, someone in Moldova. I was based in Oxford. We had someone in Australia. So um, and the idea was we would come together as a team, both physically and remotely, to help coordinate these efforts and find, you know, commonalities where we could support. You know, we, for example, we did a project on reconciliation in South Sudan. That was an international initiative and that brought African regional expertise to the table. So I went from that model, which was quite decentralized mm-hmm. and quite southern driven to sort of the development consultancy world is very top-down because it's responding to donor needs. Mm -hmm. As um, I'm sure your listeners will know, development consultancies don't have a mission of their own per se. They bid for work. And what that means is you are bound by the scope of what your donors are putting out to tender. So that was a very different model. It was much more rigid. But what I really appreciated about that was the level of impact was naturally higher because mm-hmm. there were predefined priorities that you could respond to. There was a captive audience, your client, your donor, and responding to their priorities often led to change, very tangible changes that we could see. Mm-hmm. So two sides of, of the same coin, two different approaches, and I think both had merit. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the conclusion I came to um, and why I became an independent uh, researcher in my own right is that I felt that this system needed to be looked at more critically and I thought it was best to do that without an institutional affiliation so I could come at it more objectively and try to look at not only different models, but different perspectives. And yeah, drawing on that Southern background, if you will, of, of my own my own life and my own experiences and how I could bring those to bear in the, the type of research I'm doing now. And as you know, I have a background mostly in sort of intergovernmental contexts, which... Uh, is probably more extreme in 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 the sense of being top down and having some of those biases, I think. But the bilateral aid world, equally, in top down is one phrase, center out, um, where the center is, of course, uh, in this case, London or Brussels or Paris or Canberra, but always somewhere in the in the rich world. Um, and it's almost a misnomer to say a consulting firm, when really you're a contractor, you're, you have priorities which are developed in London, given to you for execution. And you, you do that more or less well, you have input, of course, but it's pretty clear <laughs> the priorities are formulated, right? Um, so very different from the first model that you described. Exactly. And I think part of the issue is we're starting, whose priorities are we starting with? And in mm. in the, the center out model, the top down model is the bilateral donor or the multi, even the multilateral donors priorities. And then we talk about participatory development, but who's actually participating in, in, in the development of those priorities? Because once you've set the program and then you allow Southern people to participate, I mean, that's sort of too late, isn't it? Yes, that's the thin end of the the thin end of the wedge or the tail of the, of the process. It, it, sure. Exactly. Once uh, in the UK, obviously, we use the term business case. Once a business case has been developed and it's gone through ministers and it's had its approval, it's very, first of all, it's very fixed. Mm-hmm. And second of all, yes, it's at the end of a very long process that didn't include Southern voices. In most cases, I'm sure there are exceptions, but as a rule, it's a UK driven process and therefore stakeholders from the countries where these programs are implemented are not involved until 
often after the tendering stage even, because mm. once the project is won, that's the first entry point, and that's so far down the line that I don't think it's meaningful um, mm. in terms of equity and participation. Well, the counter-argument would come from someone who lives in that ecosystem that the UK's aid priorities in any given country respond, in theory, to a national development strategy of some kind. I think the obvious rebuttal would be those national development strategies are incredibly broad and the elements of that that you cherry-pick to support are the ones that align with your priorities. Uh, And then you say no to everything else. And obviously there's a bit more give and take than that, but effectively, right? I mean, is that a fair... Uh, summation of the, of the situation? I think it is. It, it is a genuine dilemma because, you know, where does the money come from? Well, in this case, we both live in the UK. We're taxpayers, so we're paying our own salaries. Um, it comes from the taxpayer. And in the case of the UK aid strategy, which was developed in 2015, it introduced an explicit focus on UK national interest. That's mm-hmm. the exact phrase. And now when you see business cases being developed or programs being developed, They have to prove that there will be benefit to the UK. It is secondary benefit. The primary benefit has to be poverty reduction and it has to comply with all of the the rules on official development assistance or ODA, absolutely. (laughs) But if it doesn't have that secondary benefit, it's unlikely to be approved. So this is where the dilemma comes in. If it's taxpayer money and it's responding to UK national interest, how can it also respond to the priorities of developing countries? So you have a Venn diagram of priorities where you have the the country's national interest and then the southern partner's national interest. And, you know, there is some overlap between the two, but it's not as big a part of the pie as I think it should be. Without sort of inviting you to throw anyone under the bus necessarily, do you have uh, specific reference points or, or experiences in your mind that really drove that home for you? I think it was a compilation of small things over time where, you know, I sort of paused and said, this doesn't feel right. And what I mean by right is it didn't feel equitable. And Mm -hmm. I keep coming back to that word because it is very much at the center of my personal vision and mission as an equitable global system. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, I mean, some examples, you know, there is an aid watchdog in the UK called the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, ICAI. Mm -hmm. And I've been involved in many of their, their reviews. And a lot of the stakeholders we speak to kind of say, what a great idea. Mm. In southern countries say, what what a great idea. And that got me thinking, well, why isn't there an ICAI for the South? And I've spoken to colleagues about this, and it's a similar puzzle because ICAI can hold the UK to account on its UK aid strategy. But as we talked about earlier, that involves UK strategic priorities. Mm-hmm. So from, from the southern side, there seems to be demand for such a mechanism, but it would be politically extremely difficult. So I think you'd have to do something across countries rather than in countries. You do have the dilemma of working with authoritarian regimes, you know, mm. so <laughs> are they really in, in, in best place to hold northern donors to account? Probably not. So I think that was one example. Um, I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a researcher. So that's the lens through, through which I view most things. I think that's important to say. I'm not a day-to-day implementer, you know, of kind of multi-million dollar projects in country, in southern countries. Um, but I have been involved in a lot of research projects where, well, first of all, um, there are different fee rates for international and national researchers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite appalling because mm-hmm. you're asking people to do the same type of work 
and they often have the same expertise, even if they haven't worked internationally, and you can pay them uh, a great deal less than you can pay an international researcher. Yes. I think in your interview with Dan Faye, he made that point at the very end, mm. that Congolese researchers are often asked to do the most dangerous jobs and go places where internationals cannot go, mm-hmm. and they're paid a lot less. And if things should go wrong, the remuneration packages or you know the co- compensation packages aren't sufficient either. I think that was a great practical example and I've seen that across the board that's quite an extreme example of you know it's it's physically dangerous for national researchers but it's also around you know valuing their contribution so one thing I often say is that it's not just about a monopoly on the production of knowledge mm-hmm. it's a monopoly on how we define what counts as knowledge mm-hmm. so it's one step before and I think by sort of de demoting in a way the or or you know undervaluing the experience of national researchers compared to international researchers we're just reinforcing that monopoly Mm. so over time these are the types of things that kind of woke me up to the fact that there's some systemic structural issues that are policed or internally regulated by very you know specific mechanisms for example this fee rate differential Mm -hmm. that would be fairly easy to change Mm -hmm. if there were political will to do so so those those are a few examples i can think of along my career that that made me think something needed to be done about this another equally striking example and you probably i mean you would know this i'm sure in the un world um the minimum requirement for any professional post is a master's degree. It doesn't have to be in anything in particular. It's just any master's degree. So query the usefulness of this. <laughs> um, and as a result, in even in offices that are majority national staff, sometimes vast majority national staff, there is a uh, ceiling that is impossible to rise above because the fraction of the population that has a master's level education in these countries is vanishingly small. And my original training was as a lawyer in Australia, as you know, and in discrimination law there, that is the kind of thing that absolutely could not withstand a legal challenge because there's no, there's no real reason for it. Um, you can't demonstrate that it's essential to do the job in the way that it might be, for example, if you required clinical training or something like this. Uh, and it clearly has a much greater impact on some groups than on others. It's just, it is a formal requirement for admission to be in a policymaking role, which the vast majority of people will never meet. Doesn't matter if they have 30 years, 40 years experience, doesn't matter if they've been a minister, they still do not sort of meet this arbitrary thing. And that, I mean, these are some of the largest development institutions in the world, but, but certainly by staff, if not by budget. That's a great example, especially because I feel like my master's degree didn't didn't help me no, with my no. career at all. I mean, I sort of had to unlearn quite a few things, given that yeah. my reading lists were largely white males writing in the 1970s. Yes. So, yeah, what did I really learn from that? And is it a fair bar? Absolutely not. Um, mm. It puzzles me as to why we, we set kind of arbitrary criteria or in, and in effect barriers mm. for people to kind of... We put the burden of proof on, let's say in this case, national researchers without giving them the tools or the understanding um, that would be needed. So for example, um, I, I did a, a small research project looking at uh, comparing Mali, South Sudan and Syria. The Syria work was done from Lebanon because, because of the crisis we couldn't access. But basically what it was was focus group discussions with international researchers or international research in- 
institutes or international donors and then national researchers and national research institutes. And we talked a lot about, uh, well, you know, what are the barriers to you collaborating most effectively? And the national researchers said it's language and not in the way you think. It's not whether we speak English or French, though that does play a role. So, for example, in DRC, a lot of the research is done in English when it's a Francophone country. That doesn't make any sense. Works for me, though. I know. It works, <laughs> works for you. Um, and I certainly prefer English anyway. So it becomes institutionalized, yes. you know, um, but they meant language in a more of a symbolic way. So, yes. you know, terms like all the latest buzzwords. So I do a lot of PEA, political economy analysis, mm-hmm. or just good research. There are obviously methodologies behind it, but a lot of people naturally have that skill set. It just may not be on their CV. They may not know to use that terminology or the famous problem-driven iterative adaptation, PDIA. People are doing that naturally in their day-to-day lives. If you live in Eastern DRC, that's literally how you live your life. (laughs) But they don't know the terminology. So they felt that these researchers uh, that were part of these focus groups felt that that was a real barrier. And again, it comes back to that definition of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing it, but not calling it the right buzzword, development buzzword, does it exist? You know, it's the proverbial, if the tree falls in the forest, you know. So... I think that's uh, that's another example. In addition to what you mentioned about the the master, the requirement for a master's degree that just once again locks people out of the system. And this is the difference between equality and equity. Mm. Equality is not saying everybody needs a master's degree. How how fair are we being? It's mm. you know what are the structural barriers that are in place for people uh, and taking those into account when making, for example, hiring decisions you know, who you put in in positions of power. For many organizations, the most senior person in a mission can only be international. Mm -hmm. From a multilateral perspective, you can say, well, that makes sense because it's an international organization. We're representing international interests. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's a good enough excuse. There has to be a real justification for that. Um, And I don't, this isn't, you know, in any way meant to be a deification of the South and a demonization of the North. It's far more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. But I think people use that dichotomy to avoid making progress on these issues. And I'm also not okay with that. Mm. Yeah. And, And coming back to how sort of knowledge or what we think of as knowledge is produced, I think you can make a very similar set of observations and I am not an academic and proudly not an academic mm-hmm. <laughs> um, me neither but it, it is very striking when you go to conferences and I think you you know as a researcher you go to more of these than I do but I go to the occasional one when you go to conferences when you go to events it is striking how much we fetishize formal qualifications much more than I ever saw as a lawyer, much more than I ever saw in, as a consultant in the private sector. It is all about PhDs from top-tier institutions uh, in a way that's it's really quite strange when you think about the subject matter. Like, what could be more removed from the lived experience of people in Haiti or Congo or wherever else than a Oxford or Ivy League institution? Absolutely. And I want to, I think that raises two points in my mind. I think the first is you're really lucky to have that external experience because I've only ever worked in development by accident. I was going to be a political science academic. So, so I, I fell into development. Well, I realized it wasn't for me pretty, pretty early on. Um, but I've only ever worked in development. Mm. And 
I think a lot of people who work in development have only ever worked in development and becomes an echo chamber. I come from a fa- literally a family of engineers. Mm-hmm. And so every time, you know, we seem to think in, in development, we've invented a new concept or a new tool. Well, no, it actually came from another discipline, very often engineering. Yes. And we don't acknowledge that. So we become very insular. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's a real asset that you have. And I wish... I wish I had more experience outside of development in order to make those comparisons and or, or in order to show people mm. that what's happening in terms of the self-policing or the lack of, of external regulation, how much of an anomaly that mm. really is. The second point I would make is, is comes back to what you said about formal qualifications, particularly from Oxbridge and the Ivy League. And I've, I've been to both. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the reason that I have had uh, credibility in my career, more credibility than I've seen other people from either South Africa or Brazil get. Mm -hmm. So I don't have an accent. Mm -hmm. Or if I do, people identify it as American or Canadian. Mm -hmm. That gives me currency Mm -hmm. in a way that it shouldn't. I refer to this as passing. I can pass as a northerner because I've lived here, because of my qualifications and my background. And I think it's a shame that anyone from the South who doesn't have those bells and whistles or those formal qualifications, whether it's a PhD or simply a master's from one of these, you know, influential institutions, um, I, I think that's 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 a real indictment of development because could there be a field where it's where practical experience is more important? I mean, mm. if you live in a community facing violence, I think it'll be one of your priorities to be involved in that. If you're flying in and out or you're not from there, it doesn't become personal in the same way. And it, actually, that's where international and national partnerships can really work because, you know, the international side can depersonalize and the national side can bring that in, you know, in-country expertise. Mm. But I don't, think we, I don't think we prioritize the lived experience enough. And I'm glad you're doing this series, which is talking to people that, that face, uh, face that every day. So Farai Maguwu, who you've interviewed, you know, he mm. lives this every day. He's been to jail for it. He's a defender of it. And I think giving him a platform in, in, in his own right is really, really important. And that's the idea. I'll come back to the, um, the sort of pros and cons of, of the format towards the end because I was have selfish interest <laughs> in, in, in that. And a couple of the things you just said remind me of the literature on sort of the very early days of development thinking in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and this is... This is at the time, sort of modernization theory, and it took a few turns after that. Uh, but it was in effectively these very sort of stripped down, simplistic models cooked up in a couple of Western universities about how economic development happens, just to a lesser extent, social development happens in the long run. And of course, they were all wrong. They were completely wrong. Um, and it was a conversation that was, was run by uh, very eminent Western economists who thought, well, I'm smart, I will apply my brain to this. They just did not get sort of the levers and the, the dynamics of change in these very different contexts. Uh, and I do wonder sometimes if we've shed ourselves of that, like that initial sort of academic origin of the profession or of the sector still has its mark to some extent. We seem to be much more focused on that than a true profession. Um, lawyers, clinicians, um, even paraprofessions uh, are much more focused on sort of professional education and uh, leadership by senior practitioners than they are academic research. 
Do you have a view on that? I mean, as a as a self-defined researcher, I, the, the division of labor between the sort of applied or practical and the academic side of things. Yeah. One thing I often have to explain to people is why I don't have a PhD and why I call myself a researcher. And I think that's really interesting because I then explain why I do operational research. You know, yeah. I design research that answers specific questions. I do some evaluation work, though I'm not, I wouldn't describe myself as an m and professional. Mm-hmm. But I do think I have a lot more to prove as a self-defined researcher by, because I don't have a PhD. And people mm-hmm. will say, oh, you can always do one in the future, to which I say, no, thank you. Simply because no. of the time requirement, I honestly feel it would just it would it would distract from the career path that I'm on at the moment, mm. and also it's very expensive. <laughs> so those two reasons together. So I think I think it's I agree with you, and I would also say there's there's two problems you mentioned: Western and economist. So obviously we've talked extensively already about the Western component. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, what who define what does a Southern academic have to do to meet that bar? Um, especially if they're in lesser known institutions, um, Mm. because there obviously are famous universities in the South, they just don't get as much airtime. And economist, I think there's an overemphasis on economics within development uh, from a theoretical perspective. Mm. Um, You know, economists are not the ones on the ground implementing this problem-driven iterative adaptation, also known as when something's not working, you try something else. Also known as how public policy has always worked. Has always worked. Exactly. So I think, uh, and this is where, you know, the, the, the kind of theoretical practitioner mm. divide can, it can be bridged, but I think the over-reliance on economics impedes that. Um, so just today, The Guardian published uh, nice an article and it sort of ta- it asked 15 economists from northern institutions for their views on why the aid system is broken. Yeah. So once again, why economists and why all northern and it's 2018, and I just think that that's, that's not acceptable anymore. It's and, very strange. And like anything else in life, it's about balance. Again, yes. I'm not demonizing, I'm not defying, I'm saying there needs to be balance in the system. Mm-hmm. And um, much like, you know, feminism, why is it called feminism, not humanism? Because there's been a structural imbalance over time that needs to be addressed. And I think it's the same in development where just to say, okay, well, we're, we're now on an equal footing. And oh, look, we have all these emerging donors and they're Southern. We have China, we have South Africa, we have mm. Brazil. It's not enough because the odds are still stacked against people. You know, even if you, you see a doctor in the NHS, you can give immediate feedback. Every time I visit a doctor in the UK, I get a text message mm-hmm. and I can provide immediate feedback. And if I give bad feedback, someone will call me and talk to them. Okay, so uh, some project funded by some donor goes into some village to do something. Yes, there are, you know, there's been what we call beneficiary feedback. Yes, there are evaluations, perception surveys, you know, all sorts of mechanisms where we get feedback from people. But it's 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 not it's not about the performance of the agency itself. It's about the intervention. Even southern governments cannot hold northern governments to account. And what about the most vulnerable, the people that we're actually working with? I I, I always say with development, imagine it were you. If someone came to my door and asked to measure my baby, and I said why, and they said it's a nutritional health program. It's going to benefit your family. Okay, I suppose I would hand over my baby and my baby would be measured. The very next day, someone knocks on my door and says, can I measure your baby? Oh no, someone was here yesterday. 
oh well I'm sorry but uh, we, we don't actually cooperate with them we, we don't we can't share data so I'm gonna have to measure your baby all over again and this happens ad nauseum mm. as a human being forget being a Congolese woman or a South Sudanese woman wouldn't that be frustrating for you and wouldn't that be a very invasive experience Yes, of course it would be. So why do we think it's okay in countries that are already fragile, do not have governmental mechanisms that protect them, and then on top of that, no accountability for the, these international projects? I think it's scandalous, and this is this is what drives me every day, right, is trying to understand why we think that's okay, what systems and structures are in place that perpetuate that, and therefore what we can do to tackle, tackle the issue. I just picked a fairly innocuous example there, I uh, consider instead if it's a panoply of random agencies you've never heard of providing uh, guns and riot control equipment to the police force who you distrust and routinely harass uh, and steal from <laughs> you and your neighbours. Exactly. And this uh, one thing I, I spend a lot of time thinking about is, is path dependency. Mm. So every donor and every new person to development likes to think that they're starting with a blank, you know, blank slate. Tabula rasa. Mm. We're here. We can now divide, des design and implement the intervention that's based on the latest cutting edge research, evidence of what works. You know, I'm, I'm professional. I'm qualified. I've, you know, lived around the world. We're going to do this. But the problem is it doesn't take into account as you've just alluded to, I mean, how many times have those doors been knocked on? How many times have guns been distributed? How many times have these projects tried and failed? Mm -hmm. And failure is not necessarily a bad thing, but you can't pretend it didn't happen. It does affect what you do in the future. And I think there's, because of donor turnover, not only in country, but governments, right? In the UK, we have a five-year spending review, a five-year UK aid strategy. When the next government comes in, who knows when that will be? It changes again. It could be next week. It could, it could be, be next week. It could be. It could be next week. Years. Who knows? But actually, it's not a trivial point because you know we had a change of Secretary of State within mm -hmm. very short order due to national political dynamics, and that that actually stopped the development mechanism from functioning. There were, and again, what does that do to continuity on the ground and priorities of Southern stakeholders? So mm -hmm. we need to take all of this into account, not just looking at whether one project has you know equitable uh, representation of national and international researchers. So I keep coming back to these structural points. I think that's one of them is how mm -hmm. these priorities are, are determined and how they are quickly overturned and replaced by new things at a rate which doesn't match realistic expectations of how change happens on the ground. So combining two of your observations, I guess, um, there are barriers to uh, participation of the people closest to the issues. Um, I detest the term beneficiaries. Uh, yeah, it's not a good one. Uh, so I will not use that, but those who are directly affected or those who have the most proximate knowledge of these environments, those who have the, the actual lived experience, there are a range of barriers to their participation um, as staff, as we noted, and also in sort of a broader conversation. They're not traveling to really academic in nature conferences in Western countries. They're not invited. They don't have the sort of formal accreditations. They can't get visas in many cases. There's many good reasons why they're not involved in that conversation. Is there a way that you can uh, break that circuit or create uh, entry points that are different in nature, that are accessible to uh, people who are currently sort of outgroups who are shut out of that system. Uh, what, you know, this woman, you, this hypothetical woman you describe, how do you get that perspective 
in the conversation if it doesn't look like evidence. And for a bunch of clarity, I'm doing air quotes when I say <laughs> evidence. <laughs> yeah. You know, what are the possibilities there? That's the central question. And I referred earlier to my own individual research project. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the questions that I'm posing. So I'm trying to interview as many people from North and South as possible and to try and draw some common conclusions. And then I hope to facilitate some discussion groups down the line. So we're looking about a year from now, I hope to do that. And that's one of the questions because I don't have a simple answer. I don't think anyone does. Um, but what I would say is that the new terminology that I'm picking up is localization. And that to me just means doing even more things in Southern countries. Mm. And the term we should be using is shifting the power Mm. because once again, it's about power imbalances. And you don't hear the word power used a lot in development apart from in what I do, which is this political economy analysis. That's all we talk about is who has power and how do they, how do they wield that power? So I wish we could apply PEA to the sector more broadly because, you know, I I was in a, a round table the other day and it was international NGOs, mostly UK. It was, it was in, in London And I asked a question, they were talking about how to project uh, sort of futures work, you know, how to Mm -hmm. project future trends and how to plan for them. And localization was one of them. And I said, well, how do you plan to incorporate more Southern voices in your work? I mean, the work you do is for them. So Mm -hmm. why aren't you including them? And the answer, honestly, with a straight face, someone said, oh, well, our next annual conference is in Nairobi. And I think... It sounds flippant, but I think that's very revealing of the underlying logic here, which is that... It's on the African continent. It's on the African continent, so they don't need visas. You know, it's fine. They still need visas. So I don't have a practical answer to your question. I think, yes, doing more activities in the South is part of it, but it's just a Band-Aid if you're not going deeper and trying to understand those structural imbalances. What's your take on... Now that the dust has settled a little bit from what sort of started as, as sexual exploitation and abuse um, by, uh, I mean, in this case, Oxfam stuff in a particular country, and Haiti sort of spread to acknowledgement of this as a widespread problem, which uh, I think is the furthest thing for surprising for anyone who's in the sector, and then broadened a little further still to sort of sexual harassment, discrimination against women in particular, in the aid sector. So that has, it seems like it's running out of steam a little bit now. I mean, what was your takeaways from that uh, brief but fairly fiery discourse? I'm not an expert and I didn't follow it uh, that closely. Apart, you know, I followed it as closely as anyone else in development did. Mm-hmm. But I would say it's just exemplary of the lack of accountability issue we've spoken about. Mm-hmm. It's not about individual behaviors. There are bad individuals doing bad things everywhere and you will never be able to control for that. But in environments where there is a distinct lack of accountability, no systems or structures to hold people to account for bad behavior, well, then, of course, it's inevitable that these things not only will happen, but will not be taken seriously. And I did note, for example, that, you know, the Haitian government then said, "Okay, we're banning Oxfam. I don't know where that ended up. I didn't follow it through. But... And then there's a criticism of Haiti of overreacting and we're all overreacting. And I think there's there's an element of that. But if you're, again, go back to my classic principle, if it were me, 
if I were the Asian government and this, the power imbalances are so vast, mm. you almost have to go to that level of rhetoric pretty quickly, mm. i.e. get out, you know, what are you doing in my country? Because what else is at your disposal? I'm not trying to excuse bad behavior from governments, like I said earlier, but if you're thinking of the average Haitian person, mm. what tools do they have? The gulf is so big, not only between them and their government, but between them and what's happened to them by international or what's been done to them by international agencies. So mm. it was an extreme example that just highlighted an issue that's always been there that we don't talk about. And I think it's died down. I did I did appreciate the fact that the UK is now trying to take a lead on some of these things. Yeah, it was interesting to observe for me, in part because I have a fairly long background with, with UN peacekeeping, as you know, and these sort of scandals uh, peaked in peacekeeping operations uh, about 10 years ago, I would say, but have continued at a fairly steady rate since then. And they arise for exactly the same reasons. Uh, you have a very large, in this case, much, much larger international presence dumped in communities, very few direct lines of accountability and um, various misbehaviors happen. And as you say, like you can't control for that. There are always going to be bad apples. What, what's interesting is the uh, wider structural context. And in this case, uh, the first time the head of a peace oper- UN peace operation has ever been fired was because of sexual exploitation and abuse. This was in Central African Republic. Conversely, a head of a peace operation has never been removed for gross incompetence. Um, if they mishandle a peace process, if they botch a, you know, not one of the marginal cases on protection of civilians, but like a clear sort of uh, bad strategic call that gets literally thousands or tens of thousands of people killed, maybe a million or two displaced. And I'm not exaggerating, like these are real figures. No one's ever been removed for that. And I understand Mm. the political reasons for that, obviously. But it does speak to the structural context in which these individual-to-individual abuses happen. Those involved are prepared to cooperate to that point, but not to the point where they will actually uh, have any sort of accountability or consequences for, for failing to do a good job. And I get that. I understand that national militaries would feel that way and, and, and politicians who contribute or sign off on, on deployment of forces would feel that way. Obviously, I understand that from that point of view, but that's the reality. Mm-hmm. That's where the the buck sort of stops, right? We will contribute as a form of charity, but going beyond that to accept sort of a, an ethics of service provision, that's another question entirely. That's fascinating about the, the UN, you know, performance management issues, which we know we know are abundant. Again, it's easy to criticize, isn't it, when you're, when you're on the outside. But in your case, I think you have a lot of direct experience that you can speak to. And quite frankly, it's... I think also the way we do performance management of international and national uh, staff, whether it's researchers or just program management staff, m and staff also differs. I've seen this firsthand. Mm. I've seen that the, the threshold for firing uh, a national staff member is a lot lower um, or higher, lower. <laughs> it's much easier to fire a national staff member than it is an international. Yes. Um, you know, exactly whether it's for gross incompetence or uh, or something far more nefarious. Well, right. it's usually in contexts where uh, sort of employment law is a largely theoretical 
uh, parameter, so you can you can do it with very little fear of, of consequence, I would imagine. Absolutely. And it's it, this is where I fear most for fragile states, because I think in, in sort of a world where we do have your traditional established northern donors and then these emerging donors that have a lot of cash and can buy a lot of influence mm. and don't necessarily bring more accountability with them to the table, they're just emerging as donors in their own right. Who's left in the middle? Who are the biggest losers? Fragile states, because they lack that kind of buffer layer, which is a strong government mm. that can stand up for their interests. Um, and that's, that yes. is the future. That is, that, that is the, the next frontier, as it a were. A strong, but also a, a principled government. I mean, the, the, the idea that national ownership, this very problematic phrase, can be equated to government ownership depends on this... Uh, idea of agency, uh, an agency relationship between the government and the citizen, which is problematic anywhere, is <laughs> certainly problematic by definition in any, in any country that we refer to as, as fragile, and there's exactly. some more air quotes yeah. for you. Exactly. And therefore, a lot of development actors, northern actors, use that as an excuse Mm. So, well, we are dealing with a predatory state, with a predatory government. Therefore, we, we can have this direct line to, quote, the people, mm. the beneficiaries. Mm. Um, and we don't need to be held to account for that because mm. the government is predatory. And I just find that to be very circular logic because that, that the people are losing out, the people, quote unquote, are losing out twice in that scenario. So this is where I come back to the idea of some sort of southern-driven aid watchdog or development watchdog. Mm. That could be a very interesting mechanism because it's kind of power in numbers. Mm. Um, there's solidarity. And I'm not talking about south-south cooperation. That's a whole other area. This is south to north, south mm. looking north, south holding north to account. There's a growing body of literature on this, but it's still quite quite thin and is something that I really want to look further at because it could solve some of the problems that not solve some of the problems, perhaps address some of the unique challenges that fragile states face in this equation. You adverted briefly to the, uh, we're going to go ahead and say the gender dimension, um, which I would wish I had a more felicitous phrase in mind because that is already aid speak, which I do not like. Um, but the, the role of sexism or outright misogyny uh, in some cases, in the aid world. Did you want to elaborate on that a little bit uh, in terms of how you see that intersecting um, with all the stuff we just mentioned and, and its effect on outcomes and priorities and worldviews and, and, and so forth? I will respond by saying that sexism, misogyny, racism are all present in development and we don't talk about them enough. That's self-evident. Yeah. So my next point would be that I think we are not even aware of those dynamics. So level one will be awareness. I alluded you know, earlier to the, the privilege uh, that I have by being educated at specific institutions, sounding a particular way, having had the privilege 
of moving around the world, which was of, not of my doing. I was moved by my family. But I would, uh, number one and above all of those privileges is my white privilege. Mm -hmm. So yes, I can sit here and speak to you as a woman mm -hmm. um, from that perspective. Of course, just, you know, women are not a homogenous group. I have one opinion among many, but the fact that I'm a white woman matters mm -hmm. um, because in development, I think that the intersectionality between gender and race is extremely problematic. And class as well. Right? And class, yes, absolutely. Um, especially in countries where, you know, poverty is the norm. Um, mm. And so you and, and there's no representation of, mm. of poor people. Yes, again, as beneficiaries, maybe in fora, but they're always as subjects, right? Mm. We do things to them, we extract information from them, but we never include them. Mm. There's a great um, report written by someone we both know. Um, it was an Oxfam report in Eastern DRC called For Me, But Without Me Is Against Me. And that phrase always stuck with me. I thought it was a genius report title, but I, I just, I, I wish it hadn't already been used because it could be a book title. I was criticizing a program that I was coordinating, by the way. Uh, indeed it was, indeed it was. Um, Large, largely uh, justified, I would say. Well, it's, again, it's, it's, is exemplified also by the lack of representation of, yeah, equality. And actually in development is one of the sectors where it, um, middle management level, um, not sure that's the right phrase, but there you go. There are a lot of women, mm -hmm. but look at boards, look at senior management of organizations. There still is not gender parity um, and there certainly isn't north-south parity and there certainly isn't parity between different races. And I recently finished a fascinating book that everyone should read. It's the autobiography of Margaret Anstey. Yeah. who was the first female uh, undersecretary general of the UN. She was also the first many other things. She was the first female permanent uh, UNDP rep in many, many countries. Yeah. She traveled the world, fascinating life. Um, and she, I mean, I, I, I can't from memory quote all the anecdotes that she, you know, she puts out that in the book, but you have to read it because it's, it shows day to day how difficult it was for a trailblazing women not that long ago mm to achieve the same thing, you know, how much more she had to do and demonstrate and be and manifest than her male counterparts to get to where she she eventually got to. Um, she didn't have kids, actually, which I think is interesting. And that is definitely one of the barriers. Um, recruiters these days, it seems they want you to justify even a month's gap in your CV, you mm. know, let alone taking maternity leave, paternity leave. In a lot of the countries we work in, those things are not at the disposal of, of women anyway. Women are, in a lot of the countries we work in, traditionally, you know, the main, they're the homemakers, they take care of the family, mm. they're doing all of these things. I'm always, you know, looking to have uh, gender-balanced research teams because, mm. first of all, from a practical perspective, because there's questions that only women can ask other women and only men can ask other men. But it, it can be really difficult. And then that's where donors, you know, they need to put their money where their mouth is. If you want gender parity and you want gender-equal teams and such... You need to invest in training. You know, women have to make a, a significant amount in order to go out to work. I mean, come on, even in London, I think the figure is a woman has to make £40,000 mm. in order to work if she has two kids, mm. i.e. the childcare costs are so exorbitant that if she made £35,000, she better prepare, be prepared to make a loss every month or stay home. Focusing on the kind of the northern aspect of that, I think, you know, we can, the, the South can can often use bad behaviors from the north and that mirroring to, you know, excuse, well, of course we don't have any women on our team here, but neither do you, you know. Yeah. So can we not set the example? Can we not do better? And, and 
now there's this obsession, isn't there, with gender. And mm. we need to include it in everything. The International Development Act that governs all of UK spending talks about gender equality. Yeah. Um, but again, that's in programming and not so much is our team gender exactly. balanced, etc. So the focus needs to be there as well. I don't know if you've ever done a, a UN standard personnel form, a PHP or P11. Um, to this day, it still asks for height, weight, eye color, hair color, spouse, number of children. Hmm. It's incredible. It's, I mean, it's crazy. Stuff that's been illegal in every developed country for a good 30 years and now is illegal in much of the developing world as well. And we're still doing this. And this is for this is from agencies, including the UN Women, for example, yep. as the same form. Yeah. Uh, the UN Agency for the Promotion of Women um, and their interests uh, is asking potential employees about their weight and hair color and, you know, whether they had kids in order, to, I assume, to facilitate people taking that into account yep. in the decision-making process. It's, it's bizarre. And, of course, that's formally against the rules and you're not supposed to use it for that. But... Don't provide the fuel for the fire. Exactly, exactly. Like why on earth, you would never say to a, a ministry that you're advising that this is a good practice, why are we still doing this stuff? Yeah, the hypocrisy the, is interesting there. Well, yeah. the UK, obviously the UK agencies are a bit more enlightened in this regard. That's extreme. But I, I, I do wonder whether the factors that you just listed uh, don't end up having a similar effect. Mm-hmm. In many respects. I mean, in, in a sector where the expectation is you will work years at a time for most of your career uh, away from home and be relocated sort of at uh, Her Majesty's pleasure in mm-hmm. the case of, of UK government, it's hard to think that that doesn't impact women more. Yeah, I think probably with uh, development or other sort of sectors where people have to move around a lot, there are some unique challenges. Mm-hmm. I think this is, again, where development needs to shed itself of its uh, exceptionalism. You know, mm-hmm. these issues, we face them daily in any society. And mm-hmm. and bias is a great... Let's talk about bias for a moment. Oh, this is this is a great Tell subject. me about bias. We talked about it earlier, personal biases. Give me, give me a juicy story about bias. I refrain. <laughs> You'll be able to figure out who it is. No. Um, you talked about, especially in fragile states, how there's an, uh, an over-reliance on international staff because of concerns, I think you said, of bias, corruption, reliability. Mm-hmm. And then you also talked earlier about... None of these problems can exist with fire. Well, exactly. And then you talked about the kind of the biases of being, you know, completely confined to a capital and surrounded yeah. by certain types of people, international and national. Um, but which of those biases are seen as more serious? It's mm. consistently the former. It's consistently the national biases. Well, this person is from that tribe. Mm. Uh, and people often use the word tribe, even if there are literally no tribes. You know, I mean, it's just this idea that there's, there's a tribal issue at play. You and we don't understand religion, like- religion, whatever it may be, some sort of ethnic dynamics. And when I've interrogated that mm. with people saying, so you don't want this person because of these issues with affiliations and you're not sure and patronage and who are they beholden to and then I get excited because those are PEA questions but why is that more serious than or taken more seriously I suppose than an international coming with their own sets of biases based on the countries they've lived in I mean they didn't come from nowhere they're not a vacuum a vacuumous person you know they're just why why is one type of bias taken more seriously than another 
Mm. So again, I do sound like a broken record, but these are the types of questions we need to be at least asking ourselves because it may be there are issues with someone due to corruption. And we do need to have policies that, you know, that, mm. that stop bad things from happening in that way. But we need to be sensible about it. And mm. it, what I perceive at the moment is that it's a knee-jerk reaction. We rule out national staff members, national researchers much quicker than we rule out internationals if we have the same types of concerns. And I wonder why. And I think that needs to be interrogated. Yeah, indeed. I mean, if the question were, does this person have any experience, uh, direct experience of living in a society where uh, violence is a day-to-day concern or has even lived mm. in a situation of near poverty. Arguably the most sort of important uh, criteria for this uh, PDIA context-sensitive, politically smart sort of version of development we're apparently doing these days. You would think these would be the most important criteria and be applying that test. Um, and I struggle to think of many colleagues who would have passed that test, actually. You know, some of the, the... I've worked with a lot of very good West African colleagues who, who had come from Sierra Leone and Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire and places like this, which is great. They were quite junior and they were quite undervalued in retrospect. Uh, I maybe didn't realise this enough at the time mm-hmm. because they didn't sort of speak, didn't present well or didn't write as well as, you know, well in inverted commas as others. But exactly, precisely, it's, our, our, it, it's what I refer to as markers, are all the markers that we expect unconsciously to be there, there. There are obviously formal or informal criteria that everybody is applying to what constitutes good research, good management, good analysis. Pick your, pick your job description. We have sort of a concept mm-hmm. that we carry on our mind of what good work looks like. Uh, which is going to be very culturally determined, obviously, and it's going to be very organizationally determined. What sort of things do you have in mind that we tend to apply, consciously or unconsciously, that aren't necessarily that relevant to actual results, that are maybe a distraction or, or a red herring that lead us to ruling out people who are actually effective, but maybe not in the way that... We, we quite expect it. Are you thinking of specific cases or, or behaviours that you've seen in that regard? Yes. Give me some practical <laughs> Well, no, and this is something that I'm still, you know, working. I'm, I'm still fairly early on in my career and wouldn't uh, dare to suggest that I have solutions. No, of course. But things that I've seen other people do mm-hmm. um, is, well, first of all, supporting or local researchers, whatever the, the terminology du jour is, um, you need, they need to be involved at the design stage of the research. Mm. So the way that I might write a research design, the way I write research designs, it's really, it's a tool to make sure that whoever's commissioning the research understands what they're going to get. Mm. But a national researcher might use a research design to actually design the research in, in terms of the practicalities of how things are going to happen on the ground. Both mm. of those things are valuable. And if you work together at that early stage, then you can avoid a lot of issues. If a national researcher doesn't write questions in the way that you would, don't assume that they don't know how to do it. It's that they may have understanding that you don't have of the context. So that would be number one. And then the second one, I'm focusing on research here. The second one, you know, the classic reports, right? I personally don't think that there's room in development anymore for a long 70-page, you know, narrative reports. 
in certain contexts. So contexts which require evidence-based decision-making, because mm -hmm. we all know that policymakers don't read them and what they, they'll, they'll read selectively mm -hmm. and they'll apply their own perceptions and biases to what they read and make decisions. So <laughs> I understand that, you know, people perhaps with, you know, less formal education and particularly people working not in their first language. If you asked me to not work in English, it would be much, much harder and the quality of my writing would decrease by about 80%. I won't subject you to my drafting in French. It's uh, <laughs> not pleasant. So, so don't place such a premium on this kind of beautiful, tailored, formatted report, but rather principles, bullet points, boxes, you know, visualization. Mm -hmm. I think that's A, the, the, the future trend, and B, if someone is not working in their first language, it enables them to participate yes. uh, more equally. So those would be two top tips that I've seen work. And coming, coming back to this, this format, I think part of the idea is that a sort of natural language um, conversation is more accessible than uh, certainly an academic paper, which rules out 99.9% of people, including myself. <laughs> uh, the formal report style rules out a lot of people. The conference sort of panel format rules out 99.9% of people just to the sheer expense and logistical difficulty of being involved in that sort of thing, leaving aside sort of the gatekeeping criteria that, again, most people, the vast majority of people in the South will not meet. But even so, there are still obstacles, right? It's still a big ask, and I'm very conscious of that, actually. I mean, even for me, I like that the format is conversational, and I believe fervently in everything I've said, but verbalizing it and vocalizing these ideas in a format that's permanent, or as permanent as they will be, you know, mm -hmm. in a podcast format, is... Threatening is probably too strong of a word, but there's an element of, of, of fear to that. Mm. And I think coming back to the, the dimension of the gender dimension, as you called it, women face different types of backlash mm -hmm. when uh, opining on things than men do. Mm -hmm. And that's in any context, any sector, any, you know, field. Mm -hmm. um, and I've noticed, and I did look this up before, before the interview, the type, the nature of comments are just far more personalized. It's about how you look. Mm -hmm. It's about your family. It's about who you are as a person rather mm -hmm. than challenging your ideas. And you see this starkly, whether comments it's on Twitter. Comments you third parties. On exactly. Yeah. yeah, so don't, don't read. <laughs> on Twitter, nothing good never read about. the comments. But it's striking that, you know, the trolls exist everywhere and they yeah. attack both men and women, but the way they attack men and women differs. And That's so good. I think it, it makes a lot of women, myself included, nervous mm. about, uh, particularly, you know, I mentioned the F word. I spoke about feminism. I mean, that's enough to get rape threats and death threats, right? So it's, it is scary. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but it's something to bear in mind. So, you know, the fact that you're aware of that, I think, is, is a really good thing because it can, it can block out a lot of people who may have some really, really important things to say. Mm -hmm. um, but I think also the fact that we don't need to be polished in everything. Development has become a very polished field. You know, it's those beautiful mm -hmm. PowerPoint presentations, the gorgeous reports that we were talking about. You know, everything's perfect. Um, or giving a conference speech or 
panel presentation, you know, I don't have to say everything perfectly for my words to have meaning. Mm. And I certainly haven't expressed myself to the best of my ability throughout this entire interview. But I feel that I've my points have come across in the way that I broadly speaking wanted them to. And isn't that enough? Mm. I mean, to me, absolutely. But a there is a a real wariness of saying the wrong thing or talking out of time in the development sector. I don't think fear is too strong a word of exceeding the largely implicit boundaries uh, on what they can or can't say about the sector. So when I reached out to people who are contractors, um, you know, aid contractors, like people I know fairly well and you were doing pretty good work by the standards of these things, the response was sort of, uh, well, I'm not sure that I'm super comfortable with it, given our relationship with USAID or DFID or AusAid or whoever the case may be. Not because there was a rule against it per se, but they just felt that it would not be received well to be speaking about the day-to-day reality of the work in a, as, as you say, permanent public format. Is there a it's the fear of, of openness? I think there is for probably two reasons. Mm. The first is that it's a sector that's just often attacked in northern media. Mm. So critiquing it could add fuel to that fire. Mm-hmm. So when we critique Oxfam, that's what the media seizes onto, not all of the fantastic, incredible, life-saving work that Oxfam does. Think about the, the, you know, all the scandals recently in Hollywood. You know, Weinstein going down doesn't mean Hollywood, you know, should be abandoned and we should never watch another Hollywood film. Mm. You know, I think development suffers uniquely from the kind of effects of, of scandals permeating across the sector more than other sectors that I've seen. Mm. I mean, how many times do banks have to mess up for us to say, hey, maybe there's a problem with banks, you know, I mean, it just doesn't exist. I mean, I read every day, oh, this auditing firm got fined again, that bank got fined again, and it's just part of daily life, and we accept it and we move forward. Whereas critiquing development, whether it's through a podcast or an op-ed or whatever it may be, almost feels like betraying the sector that we mm. all are actually committed to. We believe in development, but we believe it can be done better. Mm. So I think that's one thing that holds people back. Mm. Um, And I'm trying not to let that hold me back because, like I've said, if we don't address these power imbalances, then there shouldn't be a sector at all because it's that fundamental. I think the second barrier to people expressing their views and such is it's quite a small job market. (laughs) Um, You know, if you... Quite literally, you know, I often think, what could I, you know, if I left development, what would I do? And then I think, well, I'm not qualified to do anything else, so I have to stay in the sector. But that means that there's a fairly narrow set of institutions that I could work for. And ultimately, mm. that's why I decided spending a bit of time working for myself would be would be a useful exercise. But yes, being critical about an approach um, or an institution more broadly doesn't mean that you wouldn't work for them. But there could be a fear of that potentially interfering in some way. And when I have been reaching out to people. Um, there's been a pronounced tendency to suggest men. I think I'm doing quite well on North-South so far. Uh, I'm definitely 
not so good uh, men and women. And it's interesting because I, I have been specifically asking, and I'm not making excuses, but I have been specifically asking for, for women. Uh, and even when I ask women, they tend to come back with like three options who are all men. And I wonder what's going on there. I mean, I, I suspect on, on reflection, if you ask for sort of people who are uh, a bit iconoclastic or a bit quote-unquote interesting, it does seem to result in a male bias. And yeah, I've spoken to some great characters, which is wonderful. Uh, but it, it, there's something about that criteria which you feed it in that, that into the system and it goes bing and pops out, well, here are some men who meet that mm-hmm, criteria. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm sort of taking practical steps to, to rectify that. But I'm also grappling with why that has happened because I've seen that with other uh, exercise, similar you know, analogous exercises as well. They do tend to skew male. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be happening? Yeah, it's the rule of twos today. I can think of two off the top of my head. The first, I think, is goes back to your point about the systemic disincentivization mm-hmm. uh, to be different if you're a woman earlier on in your career. Mm-hmm. So I think women feel that they have to fit the mold for longer periods mm-hmm. of time before they can kind of let loose and mm-hmm. uh, really express how they how they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think potentially societally men uh, are socialized to think outside the box or be different much earlier on. I mean, there's a lot of research in childhood, you know, it's the good girl syndrome versus the, oh, he was just, he's just a boy. Mm. Of course he can, you know, pinch that girl or he can do that or don't worry, you know, if if he teases you, he likes you. I mean, the the way we're socialized from a very, very young age, um, you know, women, girls and then women are naturally inclined to to fit the mold, as you said, potentially, but it's, it's this good girl um, phenomenon. It's mm-hmm. if you step outside the lines. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, I think women receive disproportionate punishment online when they do step out of the lines and they sure, voice yeah. unpopular opinions. So that makes people reticent. But it's also the idea, if you've been told your whole life that if you just follow the rules and you do well in school, that people will like you, that's mm-hmm. a very hard thing to overcome. Again, I can only speak personally. I know that's true for me. Mm-hmm. I can't generalize for other women. The second issue, in addition to how we've been socialized or disincentivized societally growing up, I think there have probably been women experiencing uh, backlash Mm -hmm. at a higher rate than men, which may mean that either women have seen this in other women and therefore are disincentivized, um, Mm -hmm. or it's happened to them and they don't want to do it again. And it could be why you could say, well, I, I could recommend the three men that I know do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, we can go to the rule of threes because the third one is modeling. Generally speaking, when you see best-selling lists or top 10 this or top 20 that, the, the number of women is, um, is minimal. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it's, it's very hard not to internalize the fact, well, maybe I'm not smart enough to do a podcast interview, or which I asked myself before doing this, um, or I'm not smart enough to write something that could be a bestseller. Mm. You know? so, so those three things combined uh, could be one of the reasons. It's good that you're aware of that and taking practical steps. Again, that's more than probably most people would do. So I think there's a, a real attitude out there of, okay, well, if she doesn't want to do it, then fine, her loss. Mm. And that's just unproductive when you're trying to collate ideas from a wide spectrum of people, you know, just just because 
they're not readily apparent or within your immediate network doesn't mean they don't exist. Sounds fairly obvious, but we do it all the time. Yeah, well, this is one reason why I was asking about markers, right? It's partly for... It may be that when you ask people for who they know that is outstanding, the markers that they're applying are success on sort of very conventional inherited metrics that are not necessarily the relevant ones for me. I'm looking for people who are sort of interesting thinkers and have different perspectives, not the ones who uh, write really awesome reports and make whatever grade at whatever age and are therefore outstanding. In fact, I couldn't be any less interested in who made what grade and who has how many senior and lead expert advisory titles uh, before their name. So I wonder if those sort of filtering criteria do lean towards sort of the formal, hierarchical kind of thing. If there are inbuilt difficulties for women, as we've discussed, then that will will flow through, right, in a way that is... uh, is unhelpful. I've also read, uh, and I am far from an expert, but I've read that there is a effectively an expectation that women not just be competent in the workplace, but also be warm and friendly, much more so than men. There's plenty of empirics on this. There are, yes. And I wonder if part of being uh, meeting that expectation for warmth, you know, what's effectively an expectation that every woman be like motherly, not to put too fine a point on it. Leaving aside how and why that's arisen, if that's the expectation, then saying something that is uh, outside of house uh, will be especially problematic, uh, and I think might get more of a backlash than it would for a man. Mm-hmm. Yep. Again, I don't want to generalize, but I think as women, we're so used to that um, labeling that we don't even notice it anymore. You know, mm. but in development. Particularly, I think the the added factor is the, the travel and the international work. Obviously, that's what development is. Um, but I noticed that, you know, once I started wearing a wedding ring, I got more respect and less harassment. Just a tiny piece of gold, you know, will do mm. that for you. Um, I'm also of what people... Um, call rather horrifically childbearing age and the longer i don't have children the more i'm likely this is empirical this is research the 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 more uh the longer i don't have children the more likely i am to be seen as selfish Mm. or self-centered egotistical just Mm. by that one measure so Mm. even people that haven't met me could have those types of biases and things so Again, this is you know far outside of the realms of development. I think it's it's applicable to all different sectors, but with the international dimension and dealing with different cultures and also institutions that are also male dominated in the countries we're working in, you kind of yes. face a double barrier. Yeah, it comes back. You know, my caricature of the uh, the personality types in this line of work. One of them is definitely the late. 40s group of men sitting around drinking way too much, having a, not to put too fine a point on it, pissing contest mm-hmm. about who has worked in the more dangerous places and who had like the crappier security arrangements. Like this conversation is an everyday occurrence. It's true. And, and it's, you know, to my ears, it's insulting on many levels, particularly that, again, it's this othering, this distancing, this us and them, you know, yes. well, what you consider to be an exciting experience is someone's daily reality, you know. Yes. And I think, 
I'm not going to say women are more tuned to that than that to men, but then <laughs> there needs to be an awareness of how that sounds to other people, right? There surely, but yes, it's that uh, it's that old, you know, the old guard. The um, I, you know, bathed in a river every day for two years, and that makes me heroic in some way. Mm-hmm. I think far more heroic is actually creating a platform and space for people from countries to actually have a voice and express themselves. Mm-hmm. So it may not seem risky or heroic, but to me, that would do a lot more to change development mm-hmm. than. Yeah, this kind of heroic cowboy antics abroad, and I'm sure some of it, some of it has you know an effect. And sometimes people need to go to dangerous places, particularly in humanitarian contexts. I mean, you know, mm. I can't even imagine what Somalia in the '90s was. Somalia is today, you know, and I understand mm. that there's an element to our work um, of our you know of our work that's that's like that. But what if we redefined you know risk and innovation to something that makes power imbalances less apparent or not less apparent that aims to tackle them i think Mm. that could be something really innovative and exciting well that's already um considerably in excess of uh, (laughs) planned length was there anything that you had uh back or front of mind that you wanted to add just that i think this is this is difficult stuff and just because we don't have answers doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Mm. So, you know, I, I may not have fully articulated certain ideas in, in this context or in, in other medium, medium, so sharing online or tweeting, dare I say, doesn't mean that it shouldn't be part of the conversation. And I mm. think when it comes to issues of equity or power, we think we have to have the perfect message in order to say anything at all and I would encourage anyone out there to speak your mind say what you really think and feel um, and challenge those power dynamics Mm. we just need more viable platforms for that to actually happen (laughs) exactly I think we can forgive you know botched messaging on almost everything else or you know not saying exactly what you wanted to say on many other topics in development so let this be one of them very true Last thing then, uh, you've already mentioned several actually, but what's your what's your one book recommendation? It's not a development book. Even better. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. I know of it. Just read it. It's um, by a British woman and it should be mandatory reading not only in British uh, schools and the school curricula, but I think in development because... It talks about a lot of these structural issues um, and and provides evidence for why mm. things need to change. And if mm. we could apply that to development, I think that would be revolutionary. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.